This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Sam VR, Sam M, Caleb F, Levi, and Israel. In this episode, episode 111, we're actually going to make some history, but we'll get to that in a little bit. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Sam VR. He asks, During Sunday school today, we talked about how our actions don't save us. But then, in your sermon, why would the rich man's actions help him be saved? Did my sermon last Sunday contradict what you were taught in Sunday school? It's a great question, Sam, because yes, Jesus does seem to tell the rich young man that if he wants eternal life, he needs to do something. First, to keep the commandments, and then, when he claims to have done that already, to sell everything and give it to the poor. Is Jesus saying in Matthew 19 that we are saved by works? Actually, no, it's just the opposite. But to get this man to see that he cannot do enough work to save himself, Jesus has to push him to consistency. The man already believes he can earn eternal life through good works. Jesus could challenge him by saying, you cannot earn salvation, but instead he uses another kind of argument. In logic, it's called a reductio ad absurdum. Basically, Jesus pushes the man's assumption to its logical conclusion to get the man to realize that he cannot save himself through good works. At first, the man thinks he is righteous because he thinks he's kept all the commandments. So Jesus tells him to do something that he cannot bring himself to do, sacrificing his wealth. And suddenly he and the disciples realize that no one can earn eternal life through good works. So in fact, there is no contradiction. It's just that sometimes there are many different ways to teach the same lesson. And now Sam M. wants to know, If Paul thought he was doing the right thing and obeying God by persecuting the church, was it still a sin? Well, Sam, Paul answers this question himself in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Clearly, he regarded his persecution as sinful, even though at the time he believed he was doing the right thing. On the one hand, it's true that sinful intent in your heart, even if you don't act on it, is a sin. And it's also true that you can sin by doing something that isn't objectively wrong if you happen to think it's wrong. In other words, it's sinful to go against your conscience, even if your conscience is misinformed. But the opposite isn't true. You are not free from sin because you do the wrong thing while believing it's right. A sin is a sin whether you believe it's a sin or not. People often sin in ignorance. They do things without realizing that they're sinful. And people often convince themselves that the evil they want to do isn't really evil. Ignorance doesn't erase the sin, and neither does self-deception. 
Where ignorance and intentions might factor in is not determining whether something is sinful, but figuring out what punishment is due to the sin. And now it's time for the big question. We're making history in this episode. For the first time, we have a big question from a young disciple that's the same as a question asked by adult disciples in the same week. Caleb F. asked our big question in this episode, but it's the same question that Leslie sent in on behalf of our women's Bible study. So let's give Caleb and the women's Bible study a round of applause. Here's Caleb's question. If Satan sinned in heaven, did this mean that he was so powerful he could create sin? And then Leslie, on behalf of the Women's Bible Study, asks, did God create sin? Well, this is episode 111 of The Big Question, as I mentioned. If you go back all the way to episode 41, I answered this same question. It's worth going back and listening to, but I'm going to take another crack at it here and hopefully add some points. Whenever we question the origin of sin and evil, we come face to face with what one of my favorite theologians, Herman Boving, called the greatest enigma of life and the heaviest cross for the intellect to bear. The story of the fall in Genesis 3 and the Bible's account of sin in general has enormous explanatory power. In other words, if you believe what scripture says about sin and evil, the world makes sense in a way that otherwise it wouldn't. Bavink actually says this world is inexplicable without a fall. No matter what they believe, all humans have a sense that the world is not as it ought to be. We all think there's something wrong with the status quo. We all long for some kind of solution, some kind of justice. The Bible's account of the fall into sin makes sense of this. However, there are questions the Bible doesn't answer for us, or at least it only answers them partially. When it comes to sin, we have what another theologian, G.C. Burkauer, called the biblical a priori, meaning there's a starting point, a basic assumption about sin and evil that scripture insists on. Here it is. God is not the author, not the source of sin. The Westminster Confession in chapter 3, section 1, insists that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass but that he does it in such a way that he is not the author of sin. Now, the confession is just following the Bible here, which teaches that God takes no pleasure in sin, that evil cannot dwell with him, that he does not tempt us to do evil, that in God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay then, but if God didn't create sin and evil, then who did? And how can we say that God created all things if God didn't create evil? Well, as Caleb rightly points out, sin does not originate in the garden in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve commit the first human sin, but before that happens, there is a fall among the angels. Does that mean that before he tempted Eve in the garden, Satan was so powerful that he, not God, created sin and evil? You know, there is actually a belief system that would answer yes to that question. They were called Manichaeans. The Manichaeans believed essentially that there were two gods, one who created good and his nemesis who created evil. They saw the world as a fusion of good and evil. For them, the spirit was good and the flesh was evil. Now, this way of seeing things was very popular and influential in the ancient world. 
It influenced some early Christians too. Even today, you'll hear people talking about the world as if it's ruled half and half between God and Satan, with God the creator and ruler of the good, and Satan the creator and ruler of the evil. Now, there was a young Manichaean named Augustine, who later became a Christian, the famous Augustine of Hippo, who wrote The City of God, among other things. As Augustine wrestled with this question, he had an insight that really helps us. Evil is not a thing to be created, but rather the absence of a thing. Evil is the absence of good. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So not keeping God's law or actively breaking it, that's what sin is. It has no existence independent of righteousness because sin, by definition, is unrighteousness. Just as unhealthiness is simply the absence of health, unrighteousness is the absence of righteousness. God didn't create righteousness as a standalone property. God is righteous, and he gave the law to reflect that righteousness. Satan didn't create sin. He failed in righteousness and tempted humanity into the same failure. Right at the beginning of John's gospel, we read, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, hearing that, it's easy to think to yourself, well, sin exists, therefore it must have been made, and therefore God must have made it. Or if God didn't make it, then someone else had to, and likely a suspect would be Satan, but then God didn't make all things. But if righteousness isn't a created thing, but rather an attribute of God's character, part of who he is even before creation, then unrighteousness must work in a similar way, not as a created concept, but as an absence of the divine character. Now, saying this doesn't wave away the mystery. Bavink wouldn't have called this an enigma if it were that easy. But it does at least help us to see why creation specifically is not the right category when it comes to accounting for sin and evil, which are in fact corruptions of the created order. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Levi F. asks, Can you put a camel through the eye of a needle? Well, Levi, at my age, I can't even put a piece of thread through the eye of a needle. A few years ago, my optometrist prescribed bifocal lenses, which are glasses for old people who can't see tiny things anymore. But even with magnification, I still struggle. So I've just gotten used to everything being a little blurry and to stabbing myself with needles until I finally give up and ask Lori for help. And now Israel wants to know, what if your roof fell in? I actually think about this question a lot, Israel, because the roof right above my head is sagging and cracking because of water damage. I sleep right underneath this section of roof, and one of these days, it might just fall in on my head while I'm asleep. Fortunately, people tell me that I'm very hard-headed. My guess is, if my roof fell in, I would just wake up one morning buried in plaster, and I'd have to get up and wipe off the dust. Some people might say that getting the roof fixed before it falls in is a good idea. But I figure in life there are always going to be obstacles, and it's better to know what they are than to be taken by surprise. If the roof falls in, I might be injured, but I won't be surprised. And that has to count for something. 
That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.